Welcome to Move Forward Radio, a show featuring interviews with physical therapists and other healthcare experts. This program is brought to you by MoveForwardPT.com, the official consumer information website of the American Physical Therapy Association. Learn how physical therapists can help people of all ages and abilities reduce pain and improve and restore motion to achieve long-term quality of life at MoveForwardPT.com. Welcome to Move Forward Radio. I'm Jason Bellamy. October is National Physical Therapy Month, and this year the American Physical Therapy Association is recognizing the occasion with a campaign to educate the public about healthy aging. We can't stop time, but with proper dosages of physical activity, supported by other healthy lifestyle choices, we can delay and even counteract aging's effects. At its official consumer information website, moveforwardpt.com, APTA has released nine physical therapist tips to help you age well. In this episode of Move Forward Radio, physical therapist Alice Bell discusses some of the themes from that list, which includes information on chronic pain, diabetes, falls, Alzheimer's disease, heart disease, and several other conditions that currently affect staggeringly large numbers of older adults. You can read the full list of physical therapist tips for healthy aging and get more information about National Physical Therapy Month by going to www.moveforwardpt.com agewell. Here's our interview with physical therapist Alice Bell. Alice, the first tip on the list focuses on overcoming chronic pain. Chronic pain affects 116 million Americans each year. It costs billions of dollars in medical treatment, lost work time, and lost wages. So start with a real quick definition, basic definition. Chronic pain, what is it? How is it different than regular pain? So generally speaking, Jason, chronic pain is, is persistent. Generally, it's defined as pain that lasts longer than six months. It can be any degree of pain. It could be very mild. It could be very severe. It could be something that's continuous or comes and goes. So how frequently you feel the pain or how severe the pain is is not really the definitive measure. It is really how long have you had pain and is it interfering with your life in any way? Any kind of pain can be tough to diagnose for any healthcare professional to really determine the source of that pain. As you mentioned, chronic pain is so vast. So what are some good ways for people to manage their chronic pain? Are there any sort of golden rules there? First, we have to understand what is the cause of the pain. Where is it stemming from? Some chronic pain originates with sort of initial trauma, and it just over time, whatever the precipitating factor is, just never gets resolved in a way that a patient is able to move on from the pain. Other chronic pain can develop just kind of insidiously where there's no real injury that someone can point to, but maybe over years of repetitive stress or lifestyle choices, a person gradually develops pain. So first we have to understand the source of the pain. And then the other thing that's important to understand, particularly with chronic pain, is that it has both physical and emotional effects on people. And so we have to understand the individual, we have to understand what might be the causal factors for the pain, and then we have to understand how it's impacting that person's life so we can start to develop a plan or a strategy around addressing all of those things. For example, you know, we may have someone who has had an injury, some sort of a musculoskeletal injury. They started with some joint pain. Maybe they didn't seek care right away. Maybe they continued to use that joint in a way that just further aggravated the pain, and it becomes this 
kind of vicious cycle. And we have to go back and see, you know, what type of inflammation might we be dealing with? Are there ways to use some manual therapy or some other conservative interventions? Do we need some pharmacological intervention? What is necessary to get that pain under control so that we can then start to work on restoring normal movement patterns and reduce the stress on that joint? You mentioned the emotional impact. Anybody that has chronic pain, that there's the pain itself, right, the pain from the pain. But then there's also, I assume, if it's chronic, the pain potentially that it's persisted so long, the frustration maybe in previous attempts tried to cure the pain or treat the pain, whether that was through a surgery or a medication or physical therapy, and it just didn't get better. How much value is there in getting the patient to believe that they can get better? Can that even be part of the chronic pain treatment itself? Absolutely, and it's why most pain clinics are interprofessional in nature. There's a number of different disciplines, including disciplines that deal with the psychological aspects of pain involved, because it is not simply that there are psychological aspects, but it's those psychological aspects actually have physiological effects. So someone who's having anxiety or stress or depression about their pain, that can actually impact on the production of our natural painkillers in our body. It also can suppress our immune system. And so the pain is, in fact, not just getting worse in terms of our perception of it, but physiologically it's actually getting worse because our body is not able to respond in a positive way. So chronic pain is an area where it often requires the skills and the knowledge and the intervention of more than a single discipline and a couple of professionals working together to address the various components of that pain and its impact on the individual. So let's move now to a specific kind of pain. Another item on the list addresses low back pain, and that makes sense because low back pain is prevalent. It's difficult to find an adult who hasn't had it at some point. Many adults have it right now. Back pain is treated, low back pain is treated in many different respects. What do we know about what's effective? Well, we know that we're probably reacting surgically more often than we need to. So it's not that there isn't a place for surgical intervention, but again, we really need to understand what is causing the pain and what are the modifiable risk factors that can be addressed. And so if we're dealing with an issue of postural abnormalities, muscle imbalance, things that we can actually address through retraining, teaching, helping someone modify their behaviors, If we're dealing with an issue that's related to obesity or we're dealing with something that's kind of secondary to, you know, someone may be very weak and deconditioned and so they're sitting or lying down all the time and now they start to develop back pain because they're positionally not in a good situation in terms of muscle length and muscle performance. Like with any condition, we need to really do a very good root cause analysis understand the factors that are contributing. And with back pain, it's often multiple factors. It's often a combination of body mechanics, posture, weight, lack of physical activity, some other inflammatory issues that may be contributing. Understand what the issues are and try to approach it first from a conservative management standpoint and understand what's going on with that individual before we move immediately into surgery, unless, of course, there are symptoms that would indicate that there's an immediate surgical need for intervention. You mentioned the difficulty and the necessity, I guess I should say, in finding the cause and also the high use of surgery. When we look at that, isn't one of the factors there, too, that you do something like an imaging scan, for example, of someone's back, some of the things that might look really scary and like they must be the cause of the pain aren't necessarily. Isn't that part of it? 
That's absolutely true. You know, imaging is very useful and it gives us some very good information, but we have to combine the findings in imaging with the presentation of the patient and what they tell us in terms of what exacerbates or aggravates their pain, what relieves it, how it started in the first place. Because many of us, if we were to have some sort of imaging study done, would be told that we have arthritic changes and we've got, you know, a potential for impingement, and yet we're not symptomatic. And so the fact that we become symptomatic doesn't automatically mean it's associated with that abnormality on the imaging. We may have always had that abnormality, and now we did something or something occurred that's producing symptoms. So it's that holistic view of really looking at what is the image telling me, and then what is the patient telling me, and what is their history telling me, and might I be able to actually resolve this presenting episode of pain without changing anything that I'm seeing on the image. The other big potential benefit that I think consumers see about surgery is it seems like it's a quick fix, but it would seem to me that surgery would be followed by many of those same conservative treatments after the fact, like physical therapy, of course. And so and that's yet another reason to try the conservative treatment first, right? Correct. As long as someone is not presenting, you know, with a situation where they're obviously getting serious nerve root involvement and they're starting to get signs and symptoms of, you know, loss of function, if it is not an imminently pressing situation where a patient is at very, very high risk, we should always explore the options that are going to be least invasive, have the least potential for adverse complications down the road, and ensure the best long-term outcome. So I think wherever possible, conservative treatment. At the same time, we also have to be very responsible in evaluating the impact of our treatment and not letting anything go on too long if it's not effective. So it's about introducing interventions that make sense, that are as least invasive as they possibly can be, and monitoring outcomes and making sure that what you're doing is actually having an impact. So broadly speaking, we're talking about healthy aging. I think one of the things that happens, people expect, okay, I'm going to get older, I'm going to get pain, and then beyond getting pain, the other thing that's going to happen is I'm just going to start declining in general. I can't get stronger anymore. I can't improve anymore. And so one of the tips that physical therapists are trying to get out as part of APTA's initiative is that, in fact, actually you can get stronger when you're older. Give me a little bit more information on that. There's really no number that predicts our ability to increase strength or improve in muscle performance. There's a lot of factors that contribute to our strength, our muscle power, our flexibility. But the fact of the matter is it's one area where we actually can reverse many things, and there's no age at which that potential ceases. Now, we have to, again, understand the profile of a patient, of an individual, what are the contributing factors to their loss in strength or muscle performance? Are there other issues in terms of chronic disease or medications, organ function, and those types of things? But largely what we know is that at any time that we introduce an exercise prescription, let's talk about strength, for example, you know, the issue of muscle overload is not age-dependent. It doesn't matter how old we are. If we appropriately overload a muscle and do it in consideration of the patient and their cardiovascular capacity and anything else that's going on, we can produce changes in strength. We will produce changes in strength. And as a matter of fact, we often see that the most frail individuals, the individuals who have lost the most in terms of their muscle strength, respond the quickest when we dose them appropriately, when we give them the right 
exercise prescription. So the thing that's important to understand about exercise is there's a lot of different types of exercise that target different results. If you want to increase strength, you have to apply the principles of strength training. And that's where physical therapists really come in as the movement and exercise experts. We can help an individual embrace and incorporate a strength training program that's actually going to produce results. We often see people that start to exercise and they're starting kind of without any baseline that they know is going to tell them whether they've made progress or whether they dosed correctly. So if you start to do a bunch of exercise, but you're doing it without knowing whether it's the most effective method of exercise, a lot of times people will just stop because they're not seeing the results that they were expecting. But what probably happened is they weren't doing the right exercise. So there's exercises that target our cardiovascular performance, there's exercises that target strength, there's exercises that target muscle power, there's exercises that target flexibility. You need to know what it is you're trying to achieve, and then a physical therapist can really, particularly with someone who has some chronic disease, that they want to make sure they don't do harm with their exercise, that they're actually aiding their condition and aiding their disease management can help prescribe something that's going to be effective and periodically monitor the results. So we can get stronger even when we're older. Part of that is just trying, basically, to make sure that we keep progressing. But then, as you mentioned, too, there are things that, as we age, do tend to mount up for various reasons. And so one of those things, for example, diabetes affects one in four Americans over the age of 60. That's widespread. So what are some of the ways that people before they're 60 can start addressing diabetes and preventing it before it happens? You know, in many ways, diabetes is kind of a lifestyle disease. There's so much that we can do as individuals and as a nation to really impact the incidence of type 2 diabetes in our population. So one is to make sure that we're getting regular physical activity. And generally, we're looking for people at an absolute minimum to engage in about 20 to 30 minutes of intense exercise at least three times a week. Now, ideally, we're going to do about 20 to 30 minutes every day. When I say intense exercise, I mean exercise that really makes you feel like you've done some work, not just, you know, taking a walk or strolling. Nothing wrong with walking, but if we want to get the health benefits of physical activity, it's got to be activity that places some demand on the system. Maintaining a normal weight is really important. Not smoking. Smoking is a significant contributing factor to many chronic diseases, and diabetes is included. Moderate or no alcohol intake. If we were to make those five changes, if people were to engage in regular, meaningful physical activity, maintain a normal weight, eat a healthy diet, avoid smoking, and consume alcohol in moderation, we would see a significant reduction in the incidence of diabetes. And actually, just doing one of those things can reduce your risk up to about 30%. So if you were to do nothing else but engage in meaningful physical activity, that could significantly lower your risk. That's promising, at least. So we're about halfway through that list, and as part of this National Physical Therapy Month effort, APTA conducted a survey of consumers to get their attitudes and opinions on aging, and about 60% of respondents said they expect to be living independently at age 80. So to do that, they're going to need to do a lot of things, right? But one of the things they're going to need to do is avoid falls. Just how damaging are falls, and can they be prevented? They're very damaging, and yes, they can be prevented. What we know is that statistics on falls are significant in terms of both the healthcare dollar cost as well as the human cost. So a significant risk factor in terms of injury, death, 
long-term functional decline, and many falls are preventable. What we also know is that the key is really preventing the first fall because one of the most significant risk factors for falls is a fall. And so we are learning more and more, appreciating more and more what the most critical risk factors are that we need to impact. And certainly there's an area that is related to physical and functional performance and balance, areas that physical therapists can directly address. There are also a lot of other contributing risk factors. One of the big ones in the older adult population is polypharmacy, multiple medications that could impact drops in blood pressure that precipitate dizziness and produce the fall, changes in vision that could impact a person's perception of their environment. So there's a lot of different areas. Certainly we've got areas that relate to vestibular system and whether someone has issues in that area. We need to understand, again, it's a good root cause analysis, but the very good starting point is to make sure, again, that people are engaging in meaningful physical activity. What we know is that lower extremity muscle weakness is a significant contributing factor. The need to use an assistive device to walk is a significant contributing factor. So if we can engage people early, get them to embrace the concept of meaningful physical activity, prescribe a plan that is both reasonable in terms of it fitting well into that individual's life and lifestyle and also purposeful in terms of having positive results, we can impact falls, and in particular, injurious falls, falls that result in high-cost injuries like hip fractures and head injuries that, again, are costly in terms of both healthcare dollars and quality of life. You mentioned how important it is to avoid that first fall. I have to think that for a lot of people, that first fall comes out of nowhere. It's a surprise to them. They thought their balance was better than it was, for example. Is there any sort of simple test somebody can do at home to sort of see, hey, my balance isn't quite what I thought it was? There's a lot of things that we can do. Simplest things, quite honestly, is the ability to stand on one leg and how long someone is able to maintain that ability to stand on one leg. An individual who cannot maintain standing on one leg for five to 10 seconds is at high risk. And you'll ask a lot of older people to do that, and they think they can do it, and then when they try to do it, it's much harder than they thought. Certainly, if people are starting to experience issues like tripping when they're walking, that can be a sign that they're developing some ankle muscle weakness and they're not clearing their foot as well. That's going to be a high-risk factor. Certainly, if people are having more difficulty getting up from a chair, particularly if they found they could get up from, you know, a pew in church, let's say, in the past without having an armrest, and now all of a sudden they have to scoot to the end of that pew and use the edge to get up, that's an indication that they're developing some lower extremity muscle weakness that could then lead to a risk for a fall down the road. Let's move to another issue that affects a large number of Americans, and that's osteoporosis. Is that preventable? Yes. And again, you'll hear a common theme here in terms of what we need to do to prevent a lot of these chronic diseases that are costing a great deal in both dollars and in quality of life. So osteoporosis, again, a big contributing factor is the amount and type of physical activity that people are engaged in from a very early age. The thing about osteoporosis is that the kind of foundation for the risk can develop very, very early in childhood if people are not getting adequate calcium and vitamin D in their diet and if they are not physically active. 
we know we have a challenge in a generation that has embraced technology to a degree where it's replaced physical activity in many cases. We have children who've grown up in front of video games and are not outside running around and engaged in weight-bearing activities, and their bones are weakening more rapidly than individuals who, you know, years ago were outside and running around and engaged or were, you know, managing a farm and physically active. So these kinds of lifestyle changes have profound effects. So quite honestly, as parents or as individuals that interact with young people, we need to make sure that we're promoting meaningful physical activity and an adequate diet. There are certainly some chronic diseases that lend themselves in terms of the type of medications people may need to be on, if people need to be on steroids, people with asthma, those medications can increase the risk for impacting bone mineral density. Certainly being in bed, in a hospital bed for a week, an individual can lose, you know, one to two percent of bone density. So the big message, I think, for almost any chronic disease, a healthy diet and engaging in meaningful physical activity. And again, physical therapists as the movement experts can really help to develop a plan and a strategy with an individual that is going to position them for success. We start and stop a lot of things. You know, we know what we need to do. For most of us, this is not a knowledge gap. We know that being physically active will aid us in aging in a more healthy way and reduce our risk for chronic disease. For most people, it's not a knowledge deficit. It's really, how do I take that information and make it work in my life, in my busy schedule? How do I get motivated? How do I feel like I have the power to really change the direction and the course of my aging, I think it's a place where physical therapists can be very, very helpful. So to drop another thing into that big bucket of the importance of physical activity, the importance of diet, heart disease, the number one cause of death in the United States, is there any other things that should be high on the list for somebody to avoid heart disease or physical activity and diet, the two leading factors? Again, I would say it's physical activity, it's diet, certainly cigarette smoking has a significant impact. You know, the common theme is that we do things in moderation and that we embrace as healthy a lifestyle as possible. But when we look at the two leading causes, the most deadly combination when we look at risk of mortality and mortality associated with all of the diseases we've talked about thus far and many more we might talk about, the deadliest combination is a sedentary lifestyle and poor nutritional intake. So if we could tackle those two things as individuals and as a nation, you know, certainly we understand cigarette smoking and and how dangerous it is, and we've made great headway in changing the statistics on the number of people who smoke. But we're still struggling with changing the level of physical activity in our population and changing dietary intake. And those need to be real target areas. And again, as a physical therapist, I feel so responsible in many ways to educate, to work with individuals, to help them figure out how can they embrace a meaningful physical activity plan in their life that is something they're going to be able to sustain, that's going to make them feel like it's worth it, like it's positive, that it's producing results. That is a really important aspect of what we do. You're right, obviously, that so many of these things we know, right? We know we shouldn't smoke. We know we should be physically active. But let me throw one out there that maybe people might be surprised by. I mentioned APTA's recent consumer survey. 
in that survey, Alzheimer's disease was the most commonly feared age-related disease that people feared might happen in their life. Is there a link between Alzheimer's and preventing that and physical activity? We do believe there is. And, you know, this is an area where we're continuing to gather evidence and do research, but there are some very strong indications that participating in a resistance training program and some sort of aerobic conditioning actually has both some preventative factors in terms of cognitive function, as well as an ability to kind of delay the progression of the disease, even in its presence. So there's two areas with cognitive decline that we really need to look at. One is that prevention issue, which, you know, again, the earlier we embrace these types of lifestyle habits, the better off we'll be but it's not too late even once someone has the diagnosis. There are many indications that even for individuals who've already been diagnosed with Alzheimer's or some other cognitive impairment or dementia, that we can delay the progression of those disease, some protective effects in terms of the progression of the disease by embracing meaningful physical activity. So we've talked about some big scary things, heart disease and falls and Alzheimer's, and you look at all those and you understand why people would want to avoid them. And then the last item on the list, though, is related to urinary incontinence, and that's one that relative to the other things, I think people can sort of almost sweep under the rug. Maybe they're uncomfortable thinking about it. Maybe they think it's just something that, oh, well, again, that's just one of those age-related things that's going to happen to me, and the last thing I'm going to do is take extra steps to prevent it. But let's talk about that. Is it preventable? Is it controllable? Is it treatable? Or is that just something that, you know, you get old and it's going to happen? First of all, it's not normal. You know, that's the first thing we have to really stress is that all of these things we've talked about, they're not normal parts of aging. Is it normal for us to experience some changes in muscle strength? Yes. But to the point that we are unable to function? No. Urinary incontinence is not normal. And so accepting it, just like pain is not a normal part of aging. We don't have to live with it. What we have to understand is what's causing it. There's generally some sort of pathology behind it. Some of those pathologies are treatable and we can change the impact. Others, we may have to look at some compensatory strategies and how someone still has a normal life in the presence of a condition that we may not be able to resolve. But yes, there are many things that we can do to address urinary incontinence, it may in fact be a muscle weakness issue. It may be a functional performance issue that someone is just too weak and too unsteady to access the facilities in time. So there are a lot of things, again, that physical therapy can offer. It may be things that will respond to physical therapy intervention or it may be that we identify that it's something that needs to be addressed by a physician or by a nurse practitioner or that there's some sort of indication further testing. I think the biggest point to make is it's not normal. We shouldn't accept it as normal. And although it may be one of those things that we try to sweep under the rug because we're embarrassed to talk about it, we cannot underestimate the profound impact that unaddressed urinary continence can have on an individual's quality of life and ultimately on their physiological state. What we often see with people who develop incontinence is they start to socialize less, their world becomes smaller, they're not going out as much, they limit themselves to their home, they may even limit themselves to a room in the home that's close to the bathroom, they become isolated, they are less physically active, and that only serves to exacerbate other chronic conditions that can become worse 
over time and can, in fact, lead to the incontinence becoming worse over time. Let's close out with this. October is National Physical Therapy Month. You're a physical therapist. What's so special about physical therapy? I've been a physical therapist for a very long time, and every day I'm so glad that that's the career path I chose for myself. You know, I think we have an opportunity to impact an individual in terms of their quality of life and their functional performance and their life satisfaction. And we also have the opportunity and the ability to impact entire population. Physical therapists are movement experts. We understand normal movement and we understand those things that interfere with normal movement and how we can intervene to fully restore normal movement or restore movement in a way that an individual approaches normal as close as possible. And as we've talked about, physical activity, movement are so critical as it relates to a plethora of conditions. So as a physical therapist, I view myself as an important member, not just an individual's healthcare team, but as an individual's wellness team. And we have the ability to change things dramatically. And we're faced right now with a crisis in this country in that we have an overwhelming demand for care in the presence of cost that is unsustainable. And we have to start to figure out how do we prevent some of these high costs adverse outcomes that we're having to treat because we've failed to intervene early and help people adopt behaviors and lifestyles that are going to benefit them over time. And as a physical therapist, I think that's something that I bring to the table. It's something that I embrace. I'm proud of this profession and what we've done, the impact we've had, and I know that we can do so much more particularly if we embrace the evidence, if we become advocates and role models for a healthy lifestyle, and if we really listen to our patients and understand what it is that's happening, what they're concerned about, what's important to them, and what they're willing to do, what they're willing to invest to change the trajectory of their life. Alice Bell, thank you so much. Thank you so much. To read the full list of nine physical therapist tips to help you age well, visit www.moveforwardpt.com agewell. To support the campaign and spread awareness during National Physical Therapy Month, follow Move Forward PT on Facebook and Twitter and share and retweet our resources. If you found this podcast helpful, share it with a friend. Move Forward Radio podcasts are available via iTunes, and you can embed episodes on your website using code available at Blog Talk Radio. All previous episodes of this podcast with related links are available at moveforwardpt.com. I'm Jason Bellamy. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Move Forward Radio. Insight from our guest is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for individual treatment by a medical professional. Learn more about how a physical therapist can help you and find a physical therapist in your area at moveforwardpt.com. For an archive of past episodes, visit moveforwardpt.com radio.